0: My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors um, here at Ascent, and I'm really glad uh, that you all were praying with your eyes closed, because you would have seen me hobble up the steps onto the stage like an older man than I am. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, next week, I'm going to turn 40 years old. Some of you have done that before, right? Um, I drove back yesterday from a family weekend trip up to Steamboat Springs and we were and, and skiing. I, that's a, I like to ski. So I did that. Um, but at almost 40, the day after skiing feels different than it did in like my 20s or even my early 30s. On Friday, I, oh, oh, I also normally ski with a five and an eight-year-old, which really kind of lowers the impact, right? But on Friday, I got to ski all day with my brother-in-law, another adult. And um, I, I don't remember hurting this much. Like uh, at one point where we were skiing, what is this muscle right here in the front of your shin? There's a muscle there. That started cr- like full-on cramp in a ski boot. There's nothing you can do about that, right? You can't point your toe and straighten that thing out. This morning, literally, like to, to brush my hand across my hip hurts. No 20-year-old ever had their hip hurt, except for our production intern Maggie, who has the body of an old woman, those are her words, not mine, um, after many years of competitive gymnastics and ballet. So she complains about hips, she's the only one. Now my hip hurts, that's a new, that's a new part of my life. Um, but I think maybe part of the reason that I'm as sore as I am is I had like the biggest fall I've had in a really long time. Um, I, the visibility wasn't very good, and I was coming down through some bumps and into what I thought was a large flat area. Whence to stop? And I came in pretty hot. And only then realized it was a very small flat area. And I just like launched off this lip. And I thought I was going to double eject, like lose both skis. I, I haven't fallen like that in a long time. Like, I was moving fast, just spinning down the hill sideways. It was um, not my most graceful moment, skiing, right? And in general, I'm not a very graceful skier. I, I have a neighbor um, who is from France. And her dad is a ski instructor in the French Alps. And when you ski with Claire, it looks like she's dancing with the mountain, right? If you watch me ski, it looks like I'm trying to strangle the mountain into submission, right? Like graceful is not a word that people use to describe me up there, but it it makes me think, so grace, that's the root of the word graceful. And that's a word that we use in churches a lot, right? We say that, but it has this really wide meaning. And I'm just now remembering that I had intended to bring my phone up here, and I left it on my chair. Fortunately, I sit in the front row. (laughs) So I looked it up, and whatever dictionary is attached to my computer, listen to all of these different definitions for the word grace. Simple elegance or refinement of movement, as in she moved through the water with effortless grace. Or, it could mean courteous goodwill. At least he has the grace to admit his debt to her. Or, it could mean an attractively polite manner of behaving, as in she has all the social graces. Or, in Christian belief, the free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Does that one sound different than the other ones? Or, A period officially allowed for payment of a sum due due or for compliance with a law or condition, especially an extended period granted as a special favor. Or a short prayer of thanks said before or after a meal. Or used as forms of description or address for a duke, duchess, or archbishop. Or... In Greek mythology, three beautiful goddesses, um, Aglaia, Thalia, and Euphrosyne, believed to personify and bestow charm, grace, and beauty. Okay, so those are the nouns. Here are the verb uses. (laughs) I'm just kidding, I won't read them. There's more, right? It's a big word that is so rich in meaning that it now means a lot of different things. But yet, it's a word that lives at the core of the gospel. Of the Christian message of the life of faith. And it, when words get that big, it just makes me curious because I begin to assume that what comes into my head when the word grace is said is probably not what comes into your head. And so then I'm curious what comes into your head. There's a writer who um, I've enjoyed for a long time named Philip Yancey. And years ago, this is a pretty old book, he wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, where he kind of tackles this idea. Man, there's there just so much breadth in this word. And so at the beginning, when he kind of is explaining what he's endeavoring to do in that book, he uses a quote from um, the novel and essayist E.B. White, right? Who, and E.B. White was talking about humor when he said this. And this is what he said. He said, humor can be dissected as a frog. But the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. I think discouraging is a great way to describe the inside of a frog. Um, so so Philip what he says is that he feels the same way about grace. You can dissect it. You can cut it up and try to look it in there, but you end up with something that's really discouraging, And so he says in the book that he came to that conclusion after finishing reading a 13-page encyclopedia um, article on grace. Have you ever wondered what kind of encyclopedia has 13 pages on grace? I'm glad you asked. You didn't, but I did. So this is the InterVarsity Press Dictionary of Paul and his Letters. This is a big book. It's not to be confused with the InterVarsity Press Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels or the InterVarsity Press Dictionary of the Pentateuch or the InterVarsity Press Dictionary of the Minor and Major Prophets, all of which I also have, right? This is where you find 13 pages on a single word in the Bible. Or if that's not good enough, you can pull this out. So uh, this is the index, only the index. Of the theological dictionary of the New Testament, which in depth breaks down every single Greek word that appears in just the New Testament of our Bible. This is just the index, huh? Yeah. If you wanted to learn about charis, which is the Greek word for grace, you would then go to volume nine. It's a 12 volume work. They're all about this big and read it. It is real long. I forget how long. So you can get really discouraged because you can get a really good look at the guts without actually grasping the totality of the word, of the experience of grace. So in the book, Philip Yancey says that he resolves instead to just tell stories, that, that a story is the best way to actually capture what grace is. So I want to take his lead. And I want to tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to read this story to you. But I want to give you some background first. Um, this happens, uh, this takes place in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Um, if you're new to the Bible, there are four books named after dudes that tell the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, so John's one of them. just a guy who is a, it's a biography of sorts, kind of the history of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, where we pick up, Jesus has just left the vicinity of Jerusalem because there was an attempt to kill him, right? There was an attempted stoning, which is where a big crowd of people pick up rocks and throw stones at a person until they die. It's a pretty awful and barbaric thing. And he's like narrowly escaped and he's gotten far away from that region. And as soon as he gets far away, he gets word that in the kind of the first town right outside of Jerusalem is a town called Bethany. And Jesus has three very close friends who are siblings who live there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he gets word that Lazarus is gravely ill. And he says to his disciples, let's go back. Our our friend Lazarus is sick. And they understand like this this is a dangerous move. They've just narrowly escaped from that place. And one of the disciples, Thomas, will actually say, come, let's go die with him. Right, so they know they're walking back into a dangerous place. But he's going because this friend, who he loves, Lazarus, is very, very sick. Uh, you may, whether you've read the Bible before or not, you may be familiar with the name Lazarus. You probably know that at the end of the story, he's going to get raised from the dead. We're actually not even going to get to that part of the story, because for me, I think the most spectacular demonstration of the grace of God happens before a man who was dead is raised back to life. But first, let's read the story. So this is John chapter 11. Um, I'm gonna read verses 17 through 35. It's quite a long bit. We are gonna put it on the screens. Um, But because it's a longer verse, I welcome you also just to listen to my voice. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So we're going to stop the story right there before the, uh, the big conclusion where Jesus will be taken to the tomb, and he will say, Lazarus, come out. And this man who's been dead for four days will walk out of the tomb alive. But I want to stop here because for me, the greatest demonstration of grace is not in what Jesus does, but in who Jesus is and how he comes alongside and cares for these women whom he loves I see the grace of God. Here's where I see it. So the second sister to come to him is Mary. And she comes and she says the same thing that Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can sense there had been a conversation between the two of them, right? Uh, Here we are, so closely connected and friends with the Messiah, with Jesus. And yet we've lost our brother if only he had been here. And... And in, in this version of the Bible, it's different in different ones. It says that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, and this, and this is the key part, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. So the Greek word that's used, that is, that is all of that, is one word, greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved is a gigantic understatement in the translation. And it it gets translated that way in almost every English translation. Like, imagine the biggest understatement you can make. It'd be like if somebody said, uh, the Broncos have a little bit of a quarterback problem, right? Like, biggest, (laughs) biggest understatement that you can imagine. That is what's happening here. A better way of understanding what is happening there, would be that Jesus groaned and was enraged in his spirit. Enraged. Um, There is a biblical scholar named Rudolf Schnackenberg, which is not a joke, but I think we can all agree that's like the greatest name you've ever heard. So Rudolf Schnackenberg said this, the word indicates an outburst of anger. And any attempt to reinterpret it in terms of an internal emotional upset caused by grief, pain, or sympathy is illegitimate. So one of our tasks when reading the story is is to figure out why would Jesus have this intense outburst of anger when Mary and those who are grieving with her arrive and he sees them weeping? Now, there are a few theories, possibilities. One is that Jesus uh, has just had to flee Jerusalem, right? And that he is upset about the hypocrisy that he is finding as he comes back, right? Like, if you'd just been here, he'd have been okay. Well, I wasn't here because he threw rocks at me, right? I don't think that theory holds a lot of water. There's another one that says that Jesus is angry at Mary and the other mourners' lack of faith, that he's upset that they are crying right now. I have a standard rule uh, when reading the Bible that if your interpretation makes Jesus a horrific jerk, you probably understand it wrong. Um, So I don't go with that one. Here's what I think is happening. So let me ask you a question first. What is the most dangerous kind of bear to come across in the wild? Grizzly. Grizzly, no. No baby bear. The most dangerous bear to find is a cub because you better know that cub is not alone. And lurking in the woods somewhere that you can't see is an incredibly now angry, defensive, protective mama bear. I think that's why Jesus is angry. He has just laid eyes on people whom he loves. But more than it just being Mary, who he knows and loves, he's looking deeply into the heart of the human condition, right? That we suffer, that we hurt, that we struggle with sin, with pain, with death, with loss, with grief. And it brings out of Jesus this anger, The theological term is to go mama bear, and that's what Jesus does. He sees this bereavement and knows that this is not as the world was intended to be. He knows that this is not the experience and the life that humanity was intended for, but it has become the reality that we live with. This is something our community has become all too aware of, right? Thinking back over the last two years, we've now had the largest um, kind of home destruction fire in Colorado history. Our community has suffered through a mass shooting. And all the while we have been living uh, through the midst of kind of our first modern day global pandemic. All of our lives have changed. Every one of us has experienced difficulty and pain in this. We know what this experience is like. But Jesus doesn't just stop with anger. Because then it says this. The shortest verse in the whole Bible, verse 35. Mine says, Jesus began to weep. In many versions, it's just two words. Jesus wept. And that, that moment for me, that is the greatest demonstration of grace that I know in a story. Here's why I think that. I want to tell you uh, briefly about my grandfather. His name was Bob Farr. He actually died a couple months into um, 2019, uh, just after the pandemic had started. Uh, He was in his mid-90s. He had lived a long and exceptionally good life. Uh, I don't know anyone who I admire like I admired my grandpa. He grew up uh, in an extremely rural uh, part of Missouri. he would tell stories about in elementary school being embarrassed on picture day because even in the winter, all that he had to wear were sandals. They were poor. They were out in the country. I don't, I don't think my grandpa had more than an elementary school education. And yet he carved out this incredible life, right? He was the sort of guy who could do anything. He could fix your car and then build you a garage to go over it, you know? Uh, he built the home that uh, my... Family grew up in. He then built the home that he and my grandmother retired in, who they then sold to my mom, who lived there with my stepdad for years. Um, He was the most helpful person I ever knew. Um, Years ago, when he was in his his late 80s, my mom locked herself out of the house that he had built. So she called him, was like, How do I get in? And so he shows up and before she can stop him, her, her, her like 88-year-old dad has found an unlocked window well window and climbed into the basement through it and then walked upstairs to unlock the front door his whole life. In fact, as he aged and he got older, the hardest thing for him is like, I can remember him saying to me, I'm just no good, I'm just no use to anybody anymore. Because he'd always been strong enough to do whatever anybody needed. He had these massive hands. Uh, it was like a joke in the family, he loved to golf. Um, And so every year he needed new golf clubs because he just, or uh, gloves, not clubs, gloves, Uh, because his hands were so big he'd split them, but you had to, it was like 4XL, I forget what it was, they were impossible to find. Um, And so every year it's like all the family is out going everywhere they can trying to find big enough golf clubs to fit his huge carpenter's hands, right? Um, He, like many men in his generation, was a man of very few words, and it took me too long in life to realize that there were some words being spoken. They were just spoken silently. And so you actually wanted to sit next to Papa because dude was hilarious. He just didn't like the limelight. And so he would like whisper like this, like dry humor, like it was awesome. And I was, waited way too long to discover that. I just thought the dude didn't talk. But he had, a, he had another thing about him that was really common for men in his generation. And it's, that's my grandpa did not cry tears didn't, I thought maybe he'd removed his tear ducts with like baling wire and beeswax or something, but, um, and then one day I saw him cry, one time, my whole life, and this is what the day, it was November 14th, 2006, and it was the day my dad died, I was in California at the time, my dad was in Missouri, I flew back, I arrived back to my mom's house, Um, On that day and and that evening, we all gathered around my mom's dinner table and told stories, talked about my dad. And at that table is the one time I ever saw my grandpa cry. And later that night, after everybody left, I was sitting in the guest room and talking with my mom. And I told her how surprised I was, um, how surprised I was to see that. Because you're saying my dad was not, you know, this is my, I'm telling you about my maternal grandfather. And my parents were divorced and had been divorced for a long time. And so I said, you know, I was just surprised that Papa would be so sad. Um, and she looked at me and she says, oh, honey, he's, he didn't cry because he misses your dad. He cried for you and your sister because you lost your dad. You can tell it still matters to me that my grandpa cried with me. Not because he lost his son, but because I lost my dad. That's grace. The really convoluted theological definition that I gave is like the unmerited favor, the unearned gift. For my grandfather to weep with me in my lowest moment is not something I ever earned. But he loved me really well, and he did that for me. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus wept. He loved somebody who was heartbroken. She could not help but cry, and so he cried. And I love that about Jesus. I love that we have a God who cries when we cry. See, here's what you got to know. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that he was going to turn their weeping and their mourning into rejoicing. But he didn't feel the need to rush her past that moment. Instead, he just stepped right into that space, mirrored her emotions back, and showed empathy. That's the kind of God that we have. That is the kind of God that we get to serve, the kind who sees our hurts and our pain and who will then share them with us in order to ease the burden. Lazarus was only getting a temporary reprieve. He is going to die again, right? He's just kicked the can down the road a little bit further. Whether that happens in a decade or a year or month, whatever, because of this story, we get to know that we have the sword of God that no matter what the tragedy is that befalls our life will graciously come alongside us to shoulder our pain. Jesus has that perspective and meets them where they are. The Bible has lots of miracles. Like there's gonna be one in the story. Lazarus is gonna be raised from the dead. And sometimes it can be hard for us when we face loss and tragedy to wonder why not a miracle now? Why not this one? But in the Bible, the miracles serve like the, the, the it'll use the word first fruits. It's this idea, it's a signpost that tells us about what is coming, about the age to come, because there will be a day when our houses don't burn when our bodies don't hurt, when our loved ones no longer die. But until then, we know that because of the grace of God, we live in a world where Jesus will come alongside us in the hurt and will weep with you. This last song that we're about to sing um, has a phrase that you're gonna sing a lot of times. And it's, it's this, this phrase, that is who you are talking about God, that is who you are. So as we sing this final song together, I invite you to remember that the God that we serve is one who will meet you in the pain, who will not allow you to be alone in it, and who will weep when you weep. That is who our God is. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Uh, Thank you for bringing us to this place. Lord, our world is so often so full of hurt and pain. And it's a struggle to understand how to process it, how to understand it, what to do with it. And God, I suspect that this side of glory there will never fully know. But God, I'm grateful that when the world is too much for me, I know that you are still beside me, that you'll feel with me what I feel, and that you will love me well in it.